0: I'm going to be back in the book of Philippians this morning. Beginning a new chapter in the book of Philippians. It is our habit here to work through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. The purpose of that is that we believe that God has communicated truth in His Word, and we want to know what it says, and we want to know how it applies to our lives. And so we have the responsibility to open it up, and to move through it and understand it in its context, we believe that God used human authors to write infallibly the words that He intended for us to understand, and that the authors embedded the meaning in the text and so it is our responsibility to seek to discover that and apply it to our lives and so we have been doing that with the book of Philippians and here we are now in in chapter three, where we 're a bit of a, a bit of a transition, but Before we get into too much of that this morning, I just want to share about how a story of two men who were having an argument about an issue that they did not see eye to eye on. Things began to get very heated, and they began to have a very fierce discussion in the midst of that, and it seemed at least one of them was looking to kind of begin, they wanted to duke things out one-on-one, man-to-man. Suddenly, he began shouting words like, brawl, and duel, scuffle, ruckus fracas, fray, scrum, watch it, said the other man, them's fighting words, and maybe you'll understand that in a second, those are fighting words, those are synonyms for words that mean a fight, those are fighting words, Ha ha, very funny, okay, (laughs) I wrote that joke myself and I just discovered, I guess it's not very funny, (laughs) but we have these things, okay, we have, there are actual realities within life where there's individuals as we we engage with people in conversation. There are certain things that if we were to say certain things, they would lead to an actual fight. All right? There are some things that we can say that are designed to get a rise out of other people, and we engage them in that way. It, that could inevitably lead to some conflict of some kind. And most of us, we would say, okay, when we engage in that kind of activity, it's a pretty negative thing, right? Like we, That shouldn't be something we're doing. We shouldn't be intentionally seeking to, to pick fights. And, and to be stirring things up with our words in this way, we shouldn't throw around targeted insults for the purpose of creating a ruckus. However, there are some within Christendom who have recently uh, argued that such behavior actually is permissible in certain times in context. and context. The argument goes that there are certain situations and contexts when strong even offensive, and even vulgar languages permissible to be used even from the pulpits for the sake of communicating a particular point. And one of the passages that they will use in justification for that position is the passage that we're going to study today. Now, I don't agree with those who would make such claims. I do not believe that at the pulpit is a proper place for vulgar vulgar language, for for any purpose, for any context. And I don't think we ought to be engaged in that kind of language in any level of life, not just the pulpit, but in anywhere in life. I don't think that is appropriate. But if I take that stance, I have to give an explanation for how we are to understand passages like this one that is commonly used as justification for such practices. But as we move through our text today, we're going to be so, see Paul using Very biting language. It's going to sound very strong, very biting, very harsh language. But even so, in the midst of that, I don't think it justifies the modern practice that many seem to think it does because it is serving a very particular purpose and does not do what many claim it does today. So let's get into our text and see how it unfolds. We're going to see Paul issue some commands here and then offer a reason for those commands. This is how you this is something that you are to do and here is why we are to do this thing. And so we our outline today could be broken down into three parts. The first is be glad. The second is to beware and finally because. So beware, or be glad, beware and because. Let's look at our text Philippians chapter 1 or chapter 3 rather beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Now, perhaps you're looking at that verse, and you see it begins with that word, finally. Finally, my brothers. And you're looking at that, and you're saying to myself, okay, yeah, Paul... Typical preacher, man. He says, finally, and we know that this is just chapter 3, and there's a whole other chapter of chapter 4 that is to come. And so, yep, we know. Okay, he's going to say, finally, in chapter 4, once again, typical preacher. In conclusion, while I rattle on another 20 minutes or so. Yesterday, we were just at the IFCA regional meeting. Dr. Doug Bookman, he made a joke about how he kept saying the words, okay, let me just say this and then I'll let you go. And he said that several times in the midst of the talk. And, and he just kind of kept being reminded of something. Oh, oh there's something I really want to say before I let you go. And so I'm going to say this and then I'll let you go. And he was making a joke about it. He was, he was uh, just highlighting it and saying, okay, I realize this is what's happening. And then he jokingly referred to this text as a humorous justification for that practice, right? Paul's saying finally, and yet we have two whole chapters yet to come. Like, what's going on here? This isn't the conclusion of the letter. What's, what's happening here? Well, what you need to know is that the word, therefore, finally, in the original language in which this text was written, the Greek language, the word that is used, can mean different things in different contexts. Sometimes it does mean finally or in conclusion. But there are other times in other contexts where it can mean things such as moreover, or as for the rest, or furthermore, or something like that, where Paul is looking to make a transition and building an additional point in the text there. And I think that is the case that we find here for us today. And so you'll find some translations that do translate it that way, such as the NIV that says, further, my brothers, or the Christian Standard Bible that reads, in addition, my brothers. And so we have Paul making a transition here and making a new point as he begins to continue on. And I point that out uh, because I point that out for a particular reason, because there are actually some that would look at this and say, you know what? This says finally here, and, and yet we know that there's two more chapters here. So they would look at that and they would argue that. Paul's letter was actually edited at a later date, and and some of this text isn't actually original to the text when it was written. And so they would seek to cast doubt upon the veracity and the legitimacy of this being Scripture and this being the Word of God. However, again, the word for finally can be translated in different ways. The style, the theology, the themes, they're all consistent with the rest of Paul as he is writing here. So there is no reason to conclude that and to have that skeptical mindset as it comes to the text. There's no reason to doubt its originality and veracity. What we find is that Paul uses this word to begin a new section. He has been addressing some personal matters with the Philippian church. He has been talking about how he intends to send to the men like Timothy and Epaphroditus, and they're going to come and they're going to minister to the church and they're going to have a ministry amongst them and report about all the things that Paul has been engaged in. And so he has been talking about that at a very personal level, and now he's making a transition. And he says, okay, in addition to that, now, now I'm making a new point here. I'm, I'm giving new information. I'm giving some different instruction here. I'm making a transition away from the personal matters onto some broader principles that I need you to know. Things that were on his heart to communicate to the church. And the first thing is to rejoice in the Lord. Furthermore, my brothers, in addition my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, of course, as we've been studying this book, we have seen this theme of rejoicing several times, right? We have seen him speak of rejoicing and how he rejoices despite his difficult circumstances in which he finds himself. He still says, I'm, I'm rejoicing, I'm joyful, I'm, I'm happy in the Lord, I'm glad. Because God is at work even through my trying circumstances. Even in the storms of life, even in our moments of weakness, even when it seems like the whole world is against us, God is at work. And for that reason, we can rejoice. I'm going to read a a quotation from a, a commentary I read this week because I think it sums up this idea well. This commentator wrote, quotes it, This is not an admonition to some kind of superficial cheerfulness that closes its eyes to the surrounding circumstances. Rather, the apostle is inculcating a positive Christian attitude of joy that finds outward expression in their lives and that realistically takes into account the adverse circumstances, trials, and pressures through which the Philippians are called to pass. They're going through hard times. Right? Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. The church is suffering when he writes this letter. He's not saying, okay, you just ignore that. It's, this isn't just something like, you know, serenity now type moments, right? They're, they're, where you just, oh, you know, I just got to find my happy place, right? That's not the encouragement that Paul is giving here. But rather, he is seeking them to dr- deal directly with life's difficulties. To look at it in the face and say, I know this is hard and it hurts, but I can also see God at work. So I'm going to rejoice knowing that God is at work. You know, it's interesting that many of the passages in which Paul speaks of joy and rejoicing in this letter and in this context, he speaks when there's opportunities for some circumstance to rob a joy from the life of the people. And yet Paul's consistent message is that don't let that happen. Don't let whatever you're going through rob the joy from your life. You don't have to be a slave to the circumstances of life. You can have legitimate joy even in the midst of where God has you. Again, Paul's in jail, and yet he rejoices because he sees God at work. He writes about how some are seeking to damage him and, and damage his reputation, and yet he rejoices. The church is suffering, and yet he calls them to rejoice. Paul might be executed for his faith. He could literally die, and yet... He rejoices, and he writes that there is opportunities for division and disunity inside the church, and his encouragement to the people is to pursue unity through joy. Look at what God is doing, and don't let the devil sow discord amongst you. Well, in our text, Paul's admonition to rejoice comes as he is about to warn The church of another serious error that has the potential to rob the joy from their lives. And so he writes Rejoice in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Be glad because of what God is doing in your life. Be glad because you know that you are united to Christ by faith and what He has done on your behalf. But there is a serious error. That can threaten their joy. In fact, it is so serious that this isn't the first time that Paul says that it, he has warned them about this. Look at the rest of, of verse 1. He says that rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it is safe for you. Paul writes that I'm, I'm going I'm to share something with you. This isn't the first time I've told you this. I, I have communicated this information before. And it's critical that you know this. The the emphasis in that phrase in the original language is on the same things. It's the same things that I'm writing, the same things I'm about to write to you. It's not, it's not a trouble to me. Like, I've done it before. It's, it's not a difficulty. I'm not burdened by this. It's no, uh, there's no hesitation on my part in the midst of this. Paul doesn't have the attitude of like, okay, you know what, come on I've I've told you this a million times, right? We can, we can have that mindset sometimes when we're trying to communicate something, they're just, they're just not getting it, they're just not getting it. He, well, Paul's, Paul doesn't have that mindset, of just, come on, guys, I've, I've told you a million times. No, he's he says, it's, 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 I'm not hesitant here. It's not difficult for me, it's not a burden to me, but it's actually safe for you. It is for your good, it is for your safety, and on the flip side of that, he, he issues that this is, this is a safeguard for the church. And so we are not to have the mindset of, okay, yeah, I've heard this before, Paul. And so we just kind of blow it off, right? And sometimes that can be our tendency. It's like, yeah, I know, I've heard that a million times. Like, yeah, God loves me. I've heard that a million times. We can just blow it off. There's depth of meaning there that we need to pay attention to. I'm reminded of Second of Peter chapter one, where the Apostle Peter wrote about the concept of reminding the church. He says, I think it is right, and this is Second Peter chapter one beginning in verse thirteen, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. He says, I'm going to die soon, but I'm going to remind you of truths that I already have told you. He says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, after my death, he means that you may be able to at any time recall these things. Peter says, I'm reminding you of this so that you can remember them, even when I'm not there to remind you anymore. Someday I'm not going to be there. But you will have my reminders ringing in your ears of the truth of what I'm about to communicate. And so we would do well to pay close attention to these things that, that Paul finds so significant that he communicates them multiple times. Well, what is he going to tell them? Well, at first there was the admonition to be glad or to rejoice, be glad. Well, now he is about to tell them to beware. To beware. Look with me at verse 2. He goes on to write, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. And look out for those who mutilate the flesh gives us three things to beware of, to look out for. Here's just as a uh, real quick, fun, interesting side note about the, the Greek text. And as Paul wrote here, and usually I don't get this granular with the Greek text when I preach because sometimes it's just difficult to communicate that to an audience. But but here we have three commands. There's beware the dogs, beware the evildoers, beware the mutilation. And in the Greek text, these three things are actually alliterated in the text we have there's the what is essentially the greek equivalent of a b a t and a k with each command so we have blepatatus kunos, blepatatus kakous and blepatatain katatamine there's a b t k in th- with each of those commands now i highlight that there's that alliteration there so When we have sermon alliteration, it's, hey, okay, every point in the guy's sermon, it begins with the same letter. Sometimes we can look at that and say, ah, that's kind of silly. And sometimes it is silly, but guess what? Hey, it's biblical. (laughs) We have Paul right here in the text providing alliteration. So, yes, today's sermon, it is also alliterated in honor of, of the text here. But I raise the issue of alliteration partly because it is a fun feature of the text. It's a reality right there in front of us. But also because it serves... A rhetorical purpose on the part of the apostle Paul. This wasn't just something that Paul did just for the fun of it, because he's clever and it's just fun to do. There's more going on here. Paul could have simply used, <clears throat> excuse me. Paul could have simply used one controlling command and phrased the sentence, "Look out for the dogs, evil doers and mutilators." <clears throat> but he did not do that. He was intentional in choosing to repeat the command, look out for each item. And so we have, look out for, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh, that threefold repetition, that threefold emphasis on something we're to look out for, beware of, to watch out for. That's what that word, look out, can be translated as. It can be have that idea of beware. It's a, it's a warning. It's an alert. Be on your guard against this thing. Keep an eye out for these individuals. Pay attention because there's an opportunity here for something to rob your joy. Beware of this. Well, what is it, what is it that the church should be on guard against? Why is there this such strong warning that the alliteration and the reputation serves to, to drive the point home and what Paul is communicating? Three things the church must be on guard against. First, he says, "Beware the dogs. Look out for the dogs." Now, in the first century, dogs were not man's best friend. Uh, there were no pets. Of dogs in the first century world. There were a couple of times when dogs were used uh, in service to someone. There were guard dogs and things, but but they were not viewed as pets. In fact, the majority of the, of the dogs that were available in the society there were roaming the streets. Right? They were scavengers, they were hunting through trash, they were eating dead carcasses of things. And so the Jews would look upon these animals with with scorn and with with just disgust, looking at them and saying, Oh, these, these are literally dirty dogs. They are unclean animals. They're feeding on unclean things. They are they are unholy. And over time, Jews begin to, to view the connection of that concept and begin to use the term derogatorily to refer to those who were unclean, who were unholy, who were outside the covenant community, to refer to Gentiles. They would look at Gentiles and call them dogs. They're outside of the covenant community. They are not one of us. They are the dogs, and we have nothing to do with them, those unclean animals. In fact, there's a piece of, of Jewish literature that that writes about how if there's a, a dead animal that is found in the field and, and you, it's, it's unclean, we don't know how it died, it's not suitable for the Jews to eat, it wouldn't be considered kosher. What are we to do with that? You don't want it to go to waste. Well, it's suitable to feed it to dogs and to feed it to the Gentiles. That's how they viewed things. It's a very derogatory mindset against the Gentiles, those who are outside of the covenant community. And Paul... Actually, is now flipping this on its head. He's turning this around. He's, he's telling the church to beware of the dogs. And he's not talking about the Gentiles. Right In this context, we find information that leads us to, to conclude that the people that he's calling us to watch out for are the Judaizers. These are individuals who are going to insist that the Jewish practices, that the that the practices of Old Testament law that have been fulfilled in Christ, no, you still need to observe those things. You still have to conform to our outward standard of living based on Old Testament law. Sure, believe in Jesus Christ, but you have got to add this to yourself as well. And so Paul is saying, watch out for these individuals. They are proud in themselves. We are the covenant community. We are God's chosen people. That is us. and, And we do not associate with the dogs. And Paul is turning that derogatory term on its head and says, No, the Jews that are insisting upon these practices that are no longer necessary because of what is accomplished in the person and work of Jesus Christ, those who insist upon things like circumcision, they are the dogs. They are the ones who are not a part of the covenant community of the church. They are not God's people, but they need to repent and believe the gospel. So Paul turns this on its head. Beware those who would seek to Judaize the church. The second thing he points out is beware the evil workers or the evil doers. It's interesting, the, the word that is used for worker is often understood in a, in a technical sense. Sometimes it's used very generally, very broadly, of just someone who is working in a trade, working in a, in a field, or whatever it is they're doing. They are, they're workers, right? But sometimes, in a few contexts, the term is used technically to refer to someone who is engaged in the work of the Lord. So, Paul refers to Timothy, and he calls him a, a worker in the Lord. Missionaries were workers. Paul refers to this in different places, that those who are workers in gospel activity, they are workers in the Lord. The Jews would have considered themselves to be doing God's work when they would have been advocating for keeping Old Testament law. They would have considered themselves to be good workers when they were keeping the law themselves. When they were observing the law, they would be considering themselves to be doing a good work. And so that's how they would view themselves, that we are the good workers. We are, we are doing the Lord's work. And again, Paul turns this on its head against those who would seek to, to bring additional laws upon of the church that are not necessary. Paul says they are not doing the Lord's work. They are not doing what is good and what is right, but rather they are evil workers. They are seeking to bring about evil things within the church. So Paul turns this on its head. And finally, he says, beware those who mutilate the flesh. Or we could translate that, beware the mutilation. That's how it could be literally translated in the text. Of course, for the Old Testament people of God, the, the, the sign of circumcision was the sign of the, of the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel, right? God instituted that, that sign with Abraham, and it was something that Abraham was to do with all of his household, and every Jew since that time was to observe the sign of circumcision, and it was the sign to demonstrate that you were in the covenant community of God. And that was true throughout all the Old Testaments. They may have even considered the reality that if you were not circumcised, then you were not holy. You were not part of the covenant community. They may have said even that salvation is found in in no other place, for there is no other practice under heaven whereby you must be saved other than circumcision and observing the law. They would have been pushing that practice. And Paul again flips this on its head. That word for mutilation is a, is a play on the word for circumcision. Paul actually invents a new word to, to use this word mutilation. It's found nowhere else in all of Scripture. It's found nowhere else in the rest of any contemporary writings or anywhere else in the ancient writings of, the, of uh, Christian literature. Anywhere else this word is not used that we can find. So it seems that Paul invented this term right here to, to turn the concept of circumcision on its head. It's like he's saying, "Okay, you are insisting upon circumcision, but Paul says, guys, your religious ritual that you are observing it amounts to nothing more than pagan mutilation of your flesh. It's not spiritual. It is simply something you are doing in your flesh." So Paul seems to be using very, very strong and, and biting language here where he is turning the, the derogatory terms of the Jews and the Judaizers at those who would seek to, to bring the practice of, of Jewish Old Testament law and bring that to bear upon the church. They have these terminologies that they viewed themselves by and that they viewed outsiders by, and Paul is turning that all on its head and says, No, I'm sorry. You guys, you think you're the you, you think you're all that? You think you're the good workers doing the work of the Lord? You're not. You're doing what is evil. You're the, actually the dogs, actually. It would be like if someone were to, to look upon us and, and, and say that, oh, if we preach the gospel of Christ and Christ alone for salvation, that we are preaching heresy. You need to do these other things. You need to add this other stuff to your life. You have to observe this and that other practice. And we can say, actually, on the basis of Scripture, we're not the heretics, you are. That's what Paul is doing. He's flipping it on its head. He's showing, he's, he's exposing how these Judaizers, they're seeking to bring the practice of the law upon the church. He says, no. You think you're this? Well, you're actually the opposite. He's taking those existing pejoratives and flipping them on their head and showing how those who use such la- strong language are the actual violators of what it is that they're claiming. This isn't the only time that Paul had to address this issue. He addressed the issue of circumcision in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is verse 18. He says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor Uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. He uses the example of circumcision in Romans chapter 2 to make a point about being condemned by the law and the Jews, how they are condemned in the law. But perhaps his most scathing words come in Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read an extended text for you, but listen to Paul as he talks about this issue, addressing the same thing with the Galatian church that's going on here in the book of Philippians. The Judaizers coming in seeking to promote practice of the Old Testament law that was fulfilled in Christ, now saying you still have to engage in this. Paul says, look, Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you are trying to earn something by this, you're trying to use some kind of outward manifestation of this circumcision as a way to earn favor with God, Jesus Christ has no advantage. It doesn't bened- Christ will benefit you nothing if you're trying to earn a favor with your circumcision. He says, I testify again to you that every man who accepts circumc- circumcision, he is obligated to keep the whole law. Problem. Can anyone keep the whole law? No, we've been talking about that in our Sunday evening discipleship class, right? Where we're going through the 10 commandments and discovering that they're so simple and yet we cannot even attain to keeping the 10 commandments. We can't keep the law. But if you insist upon circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. Verse four, you are severed from Christ. Think of the word, the the, the picture there, okay? What is a circumcision? It's It's a severing of part of the flesh from the body. Well, if you insist upon circumcision, Paul says you're the one that's severed. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But then he goes on to say, If I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? The the Jews were seeking to bring persecution against Paul. He says, if this was necessary, and if I was preaching this, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the cross, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then he says these startling words. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. I wish those who unsettle you, who would insist upon circumcision, would emasculate. It's like as if Paul is saying, "Hey, if you're going to insist on circumcision, you know it would be just better if you just cut the whole thing off. Just, just cut it all off, because then at least you wouldn't be reproducing any more children that would disciple into Judaism. All right? This, this just does not need to be going on in the body of Christ." so Paul says that those who insist upon this practice, trying to insist upon observance of, of Old Testament law, that again, it's been fulfilled in Christ. We don't have to keep the Old Testament law. It's not binding upon us. We're not a part of that covenant. There is a new covenant in, the, in Jesus Christ. He says we don't have to do that. And those who insist upon that, they're the ones that are the dogs, not us on the outside. They're the ones who are the evil workers. They're not good workers. They're not doing the work of the Lord. And they're not circumcising. They're mutilating themselves. Well, how is it that Paul can say these things with such confidence? Well, here's where we get to the because. We saw that we are to be glad in the Lord. There's opportunities for something to rob our joy, and yet we are to be glad in the Lord we're to be aware because there is something that can rob our joy. We're to be aware of that. And why can Paul say these things with such confidence that those who engage in this practice, they're engaged in mutilation? Because. Because, verse 3. Because, or for, because we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, you know, you're physically circumcising yourselves, but it's actually, it's actually us. We're the true circumcision. Paul wrote in the book of Colossians that, that we have been circumcised by God, not, not with a circumcision made with hands. Right? There's not a, a physical circumcision that took place, but rather A circumcision made without hands, when we are made new in Jesus Christ, when when God gave us a new heart, new ability to love him, a a heart of faith to to love and serve God. That is a a spiritual circumcision that takes place when we are transferred into the the new covenant community of the church. Plus, as we are, the true circumcision. It's not those who mutilate their physical flesh and, and are putting confidence in that for merit before God, but rather it is us who are engaged in this activity. And he gives three things, that, that, are three things that, people, that God's people do, and they stand in contrast to what the Judaizers were doing. First is that they worship by the Spirit of God. We are the circumcision who do what? Worship by the Spirit of God. The word there for worship is, is not simply a word about singing and, and prayer and such things, though that would be included in the word, but it's actually a broader word than that. It carries the idea of, of religious service before God. And many times the word is translated to mean the word service. So we find in Luke chapter verse 8, when Jesus Christ is being tempted by the devil and he gives this response to the devil, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, that's a different word for worship, and him only shall you serve. That's the same word that we find here in Philippians for worship. We worship or we serve by the Spirit of God. And then we find in Romans chapter 1 verse 9, for God is my witness, writes Paul, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel. That's the same word, service, worship. It is a life activity. Is not merely. It includes the aspect of praise and prayer and things of that nature and adoration of our God. It's included within that, but it extends beyond that. And and Paul says, we worship, we serve, by the spirits of God. It's in contrast to the Judaizers the Judaizers, seeking to bring God's Old Testament law to bear upon the New Testament community of the church. They thought they are the workers. Paul says, no, you are the evil workers. On the contrary, it is us who serve, who worship by the Spirit of God. They were stressing the physical reality of circumcision, putting confidence in the flesh. Paul is emphasizing the spiritual reality of our spiritual service before God. We serve by the Spirit of God. Secondly, we glory in Christ. God's people worship, they serve by the Spirit of God. Second, they glory in Christ. The word for glory, it refers to the idea of boasting, to be be, uh, bragging about what we have. The Jews were glorying. They were boasting in the physical reality of their circumcision. They looked to that reality that they were keeping Old Testament law as earning merit and favor before God. And Paul says, no, we don't glory in these physical things. We glory in Christ. The Jews thought it was proof positive that they were the people of God if they were circumcised. Paul says, we are the people of God. By virtue of being united to Christ by faith. And so he writes over in in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, it says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And, of course, we have the text in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is unmerited favor, nothing that we've done to earn it. You've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, not something you've brought about on your own, not something you've done to earn it. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast in themselves. The Jews were boasting in themselves. They were saying, yes, I'm keeping the law, and therefore I am God's people because, hey, I've been circumcised. Hey, I'm observing this other aspect of the law. Maybe I'm keeping dietary laws. I'm doing these other things. I'm good because I'm keeping the law, and they're boasting in their flesh. Paul says that's not how we're saved. We're not saved by our performance. We're not saved by the things that we do. It's not a result of works. Because if it were, we could brag about it and we could look to ourselves. But rather, no, I cannot boast in myself. There is nothing that I bring to the table that is good. But rather, I can only boast in the cross of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So, the inverse again of that, we, we glory in Christ. We do not put confidence in the flesh. And that's the last part of the phrase there. We are the circumcision, we are the true people of God who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Again, this is precisely what the Jews were doing. Confidence in the flesh. Confidence in what they were doing to earn their way to God. Paul says our confidence isn't there. It can't be. Even the Old Testament law itself states that all of our own righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And that word for filthy rags, it is a very strong word. It speaks of something that we would, if we were to see it, we would recoil and just view it, view it with disgust. Like this, this is not good. Our own righteousness is filthy before God. We have nothing to boast in. There's nothing in our flesh that we can boast in. And so Paul is warning the church, warning them about these Judaizers, and then he gives them this admonition. There's a warning against the Judaizers, but then he shows forth the glory of Christ. There are those who would put confidence in the flesh, but we don't do that, for we know that would only lead us into death. But we glory in our Savior Jesus Christ, amen. The one who died on our behalf. The one that that Paul has just extolled the riches and the glories of back in chapter 2 when he wrote about how it is this Christ who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross and the exaltation of our Savior, that God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the one that we boast in. That's the one that we praise. That's the one that we place our confidence in. It's not ourselves. Placing confidence in ourselves is the way to death. But it is through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have life, and it is Him that we rejoice in. Now, as we consider how this applies to us today, we see the warning against the Judaizers, but show of hands, was the last time someone you crossed paths with someone who asked you, "Hey, is, are you circumcised? Is the men in your life are they circumcised?" I've never experienced that, right? (laughs) Nobody, I doubt anybody else here has experienced that. No, There's not people going around today, at least that I'm aware of, that are stressing that, that this is something that you need to do to be saved. Yeah, sure, believe in Jesus Christ, but this is something that's got to happen as well. But are there others who put confidence in the flesh in the same way that the Judaizers did, even if they aren't stressing circumcision? I submit to you that there are. I submit to you that there are and I thought of a few things and I'm going to share these with you and this might cause us to reflect and think this morning but this is a good and healthy exercise. Roman Catholicism stresses the importance on keeping the sacraments to earn a favor with God. This is contrary to what God says in his word to what Paul writes here about putting confidence in the flesh. Eastern Orthodoxy, they do things in a slightly different way, but it's a similar thing, that you are earning favor with God through the sacraments and through the observances of particular things. Of course, there are other various cults. We think of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and even here locally, we have the Branamites who stress different observances of certain things that earn you favor with God, that you have to do these things if you are to be saved, if you are to be a part of God's family. But then there are some things that might hit a little bit closer to home when we consider, okay, yeah, those are other religions, those are other cults, and those are other things that, yeah, of course, it's easy to see how they might be putting confidence in the flesh, but then there are other things that we can be tempted by to put confidence in our flesh that hit a little closer to home. Things like trusting in our physical water baptism and looking at that as being proof that we're saved. Oh, I've been baptized, therefore I'm saved. That's not what the Bible says. Things like the Lord's table that we observed today. People can come before this and they can partake of this and thinking that I'm somehow earning favor with God here and now God is going to forgive me because I've partaken of this. We have to be on guard against that kind of thinking because that is not the biblical picture of what this means. And that is confidence in the flesh that doing something earns you something. Paul says there's no confidence in the flesh. Legalism. Enforcing my convictions that the scriptures do not present, but I think are good and right. Making a law where there is no law. Enforcing that upon myself, enforcing that upon others. Well, I don't do X, Y, Z. Therefore, hey, I'm good, I'm okay. performance-ism. I don't even know if that's a real word, if anybody's ever used that word, but I'm using that word, performance-ism. Because I think this is something that we here in this room can be tempted by today. And I even confess that this has been something that I've had to work through in my own life of viewing my own personal be- performance before God in things like uh, uh, spiritual disciplines and, and just things, matters of, of personal discipline and, and, and matters of personal holiness, and thinking that by doing these things, if, I'm just, if I could just be a good person, that God's gonna love me more. Then there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us less. Certainly that we can do things that that grieve our God. Certainly there are things that we can do that please our God. But there's nothing that we can do to earn favor with Him. Nothing that can cause Him to love us more and love us less. Furthermore, we can easily begin to look down our noses upon other people that that may be at a different stage of spiritual growth and development and maturity in their life than, than we are and think that, well, i You know, I'm not struggling with that. How can someone be truly saved if they're struggling with that issue? And we can look down our noses at that individual and begin to judge them in that way. We can think that, oh, anyone who practices XYZ, they must not be truly saved. Or since I don't struggle with that, no one who is truly saved can either. And if you do, it must mean you're not truly saved. And I want to be careful here because sin is serious. I don't want to make light of that. Sin is a very serious thing. But when we make ourselves the standard by which to judge others, have we not slipped into a mindset that places confidence in the flesh? If I am the standard, the confidence is in my flesh. And Paul says we need to be on guard against that kind of thinking. We need to be on guard against. Because there are many things that have the opportunity to rob you of your joy. And legalism, that's one of them. You wouldn't have your joy robbed right out of your life. Go through life thinking that it is your performance that is through the basis through which God loves you. Thinking that God's love for you is contingent upon how you do in your life. And it's just not the case. His mercy is more. His mercy is more than all that we have done. So, we cannot think that our performance is going to earn us a favor with God, and such thinking will rob us of our joy. When we heap up rules upon ourselves and, and beat ourselves up that we cannot attain to it all, living in the flesh, placing confidence in the flesh, will rob you of your joy. And Paul did not say, okay, okay, yeah, so you don't have to worry about circumcision. But instead, here's all the other things that you need to do in this life. He didn't do that. Rather, he says, no, we do not place any confidence in the flesh. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ that he has done it all. And we put no confidence in the flesh. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to be on our guard. We need to be glad because of what Christ has done for us. We need to beware aware that there's things that will seek to rob us of our joy. And it's because that we are the true circumcision. We are the true people of God who do not place confidence in the flesh, but rather glory in Christ. In the coming weeks, we're going to see how if if anyone had a reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's Paul, and he's going to explain why that is the case. But he was willing to suffer the loss of it all for the sake of knowing Christ. And so I'm going to leave you with this today to consider. Where is your confidence at today? If you're to stand before God upon his judgment scene, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Is your confidence in the things that you have done? Baptism, I partook of the Lord's table. I went to church. I was a good person. Or is your confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Are you glorying in Christ? Is your confidence in Christ? Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you that we do not have to place our confidence in the flesh. Because we know that the flesh cannot save us. The flesh cannot sanctify us. It is only through the grace of Christ that, that we can do anything. Thank you for this reminder, this this warning from Paul that he cautions us against those who would seek to bring about external laws upon us. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. And I pray that we would boast in Christ, that we would place no confidence in the flesh, but trust in Christ, in him alone. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.